Grand Canyon University, a Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering over 250 engaging programs online. GCU integrates the free market system and its welcoming Christian worldview perspective into its academic programs and throughout its online campus. GCU's online students received over $144 million in scholarships in 2021. Visit gcu.edu myoffer to see the scholarships you qualify for. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Network. We are that corner of the geek show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the psychedelic of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and a filmmaker. I also work for the British horror website, horrified.com, and write in lay booklets for Second Run. I've been joined this week by. I'm Joe. I am part of the Geek Show. Um, I run the Dreaming Machine Animation Podcast, and I'm a film music aficionado uh, <laughs> fanatic. So, um, so yeah, I'm excited to be here. Listeners, do you like the 1960s pop group The Monkees? If so, you were being fooled by a capitalist control machine designed to channel the youth's natural revolutionary fervor away from fully engaging with American imperialism in Vietnam. Not my words, but the clear sentiment behind Bob Raffleson's debut film, Head, a film which features substantially more footage of the execution of Nguyen Van Lem than you would expect from a film starring The Monkees. It's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. Um, it's a really good film. It, it's a really amazing, interesting film, but it's tonally a lot, definitely. It's tonally <laughs> all over the place, I think, it's fair to say. I think maybe in order to set up why this is such a strange film, you should talk about who the monkeys were and what their image was at the time. Um, because you, w- would it be fair to say you're you're a bigger monkeys fan than me, right? Um, kind of. Um, yeah. It's the kind of thing like when when you grew up, you you followed your parents' record collection, and we had a couple of monkeys LPs. Yeah. And that, and we, I think we watched some of the shows as well on BBC. So we were kind of um, we kind of we were kind of into it in a casual way. I think. Um, whenever I try to bust out the vinyl, it's not so much. Um, you know, Mr. Dukes or anything like that. It's monkeys tend to be a popular choice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> casual, for any casual listeners. So, you, you know, I have a fun spot for them, for sure. Like from my childhood, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a fan, but I watched a documentary about them uh, from the mid-90s to prep for this. And there are a staggering number of songs by the monkeys where as soon as they start up you think oh that one yeah yeah 
I mean, it, yeah, it's incredible how many. Um, I mean, they pop up annoyingly. They pop up on adverts nowadays. I think depressingly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they have. They have been. I was about to say written. They have been involved in some like really fantastic songs over the years. You know. Yeah, because they had an absolutely golden songwriting team behind them. You know, they had uh, Neil Diamond wrote one of their biggest hits, I'm a Believer. Uh, there are songs in this film by Carol King and Harry Nilsson. Yeah. Uh, but this is also the reason why they were not universally liked, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting. I was trying to think if they existed today, would this be as big a deal about being manufactured? Mm. Um, because that was a, a massive criticism aimed at them. And I think some of the it, I, I think some of the films definitely a reaction against that is fair to say. <laughs> um, yeah. e- even though they weren't a principal writer or director on the film, like uh, the members themselves, um, it definitely seems to be a very conscious reaction against that. Um, and it's tricky because they were like so-called music aficionados, like the true music fans were very dismissive of them. Mm. Um, like these guys were like very intelligent, very likable, interesting people. And they're very devalued in terms of like how talented they actually were. Yeah. Um, and then, so when they bring out this experimental film, it doesn't kind of, with that kind of potentially target audience who would be into that kind of thing, potentially, it, it didn't really fly. Yeah, it alienated the, the kind of more casual fan base as well at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting that kind of that position that the monkeys were in then, because the, the myth about them was they couldn't play their instruments. And that mm. wasn't exactly true. I mean, some of them, Mike Nesmith, for example, who died at the end of uh, last year as as we record this, in fact, uh, Mike Nesmith was hired and was a songwriter. He was hired like on the basis of his musical work. Um, it's just that that wasn't the focus of what the band were going to be. They were going to be a vehicle for other people's songs. And in other musical genres, that's not a problem. You know, no one cares that the Four Tops or the Supremes had songwriters for all their songs. But by 1968, rock and roll had started to fetishize that idea of the singer-songwriter and of music, musicianship, which is... The first challenge with that is you have to pronounce it, I think. And then <laughs> if you can pronounce it, it goes on to, you know, can you play your instruments? Um, but that was the attitude that I think, as you say, the monkeys are, are trying to dispel with head. Yeah. Um, and I think... We'll, we'll get into the film, won't we? But um, mm. I think maybe the weaker moments when they try to do that too much, like in the film, um, and the best moments are when they keep their humour, but throwing that cynicism yeah. like, it, within their like normal character and likability. And they that's probably the most effective bit of the movie for me. The thing um, that kept coming to mind is that, like, for all, this is obviously an attempt to make the monkey's image a bit, edgier and a bit more congruent with the kind of more radical politicized experimental art that was coming out of the hippie movement the thing that ultimately secured the monkey's legacy wasn't the fact that they did this it was the fact that all all of those sort of cheesy manufactured pop songs that all of the hippies were scorning were actually really great 
Fant- absolutely fantastic songs. Mm-hmm. That's what does it. Nobody who listens to the last train to Clarksville now cares mm-hmm. about who wrote it unless they know it as a sort of trivia point. It's just a great song. Yeah, Daydream Believer, Stepping Stone. Um, there's so many Stepping fantastic Stone's songs. Great. Yeah. That's fantastic, isn't it? Um, and, and even some great songs like in the later period where they were creatively more involved too. So I think. Um, like Head, we should say Head is a fantastic soundtrack. And yes. That's what surprised me the most when revisiting the film for this podcast was how good the, the soundtrack was. <laughs> I think there is uh, a point in the note-taking process for every episode of Pop Screen where I just can't write anything other than this song bangs. And this time it was <laughs> Circle Sky. As soon as Circle Sky starts playing, I just thought, oh, this song yeah. absolutely bangs. Yeah, I mean, I only saw... Like that, people like Carol King were involved afterwards, and and it made sense because the, mm. the quality of the songs was so good. Um, and it's just so varied as well. It's definitely reminded me a lot of um, it's very of its time of that psychedelia phase, yeah, but not just but not just like the kind of like uh, the modern maybe misconception about that, where it's just like droney guitars and psychedelic effects, but things like trumpets and and yeah. Indian like so-called Indian, in quotations, style music. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of creativity and variety to it as well. And plus actual melodies. That surprised yeah. me when I'm visiting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, of, guys. You it's, it's yeah. experimental film, but you forget like the monkeys and all these great songwriters are involved. Mm. Um, so for an experimental film, it's weirdly accessible, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I think it it depends on what benchmark you're measuring it from. Like, Pauper's song is a bit of an odd song by monkey standards. But I think if you listen to Godspeed, You Black Emperor, it's not that (laughs) odd, really, is it, if we're honest? That's a fair point. It is your benchmark. Um, uh, If I've seen films where it's a still image, like if I've seen, like, Twin Peaks episode, like the Return episode seven, where someone's sweeping for, like, five minutes or something, like having actual dialogue, like probably seems not too experimental. <laughs> yes. like, sort of, like sketches you can vaguely follow. So it, it, it does depend on your benchmark too. I can de- I can still see why, especially when I read about the advertising campaign and the and them like not trying to make any sense of it whatsoever and how they promoted it. I can see why it didn't do well commercially at the time. Yeah, should we talk about the advertising campaign so we can like reconstruct how an audience will have gone to see this film because it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I read that the main TV advert was a slow zoom in to um, the the head of their publicist. Yes. And and it had the word, like, it it was a parody, wasn't it, of, um, it was a parody of a film, wasn't it, the the advert? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Um. But it, and that was the main advert was was zooming on someone's head and like not advertising it in the main way you, you would think of to do it really. Um, and they, they even um, even at the start of the film they tell you not to expect any logic or sense in the film and just to go with it. Yeah, the opening credits uh, include the line "We hope you like our story," although there isn't one. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, can't say further than that. 
Uh, it begins, as you would expect, with a lengthy scene of a politician's microphone feedbacking as he tries to open the Gerard Desmond Bridge in San Francisco. There's so many bits I loved about this when I was making notes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, bridge openings should be more of a thing, like in general, but that's a bit of an aside. Um, like politicians' speeches would be a lot more interesting if they had like crazy psychedelic mic effects when they're trying to say their serious point. Definitely. I think if your microphone works too well, you should just play Sister Ray by the Velvet Underground in the background of your speech and it'll sound a lot more exciting. Yeah, for sure. That, this is my main takeaway from the opening scene, which really <laughs> does some of the movie, I think. <laughs> um, so it's quite a, it's quite a slow introduction, isn't it? Um, mm. And then the mic thing shows that it's going to be weird and, trip and trippy, basically. Yes, and then yeah. there's, there's excitement. The monkeys are running into view and running past everyone. And there's an exciting jump off a bridge that did not obviously involve a dummy at any point in the, like, the <laughs> long shot. Yes. <laughs> it may not be the most convincing, but it's still exciting. Um, they do this a lot during the film where they have like uh, the cut to like a super fast camera moving really fast for the um, and then they come back to a normal shot and it's just a lot of energy, emotion, kind of like you get in the TV show, I guess. Um, well, yeah, that's the thing, because um, we've mentioned the TV show briefly. That was the project that they were assembled for. And Mickey Dolan's, uh, their drummer, said that th this was a bit like Leonard Nimoy turning into an actual Vulcan. You know, they, they were hired to play this fake band on TV. Um and they ended up being an actual, like, internationally successful band. But it's been many, many years since I watched the show. Like you, I watched it as a child. It used to get rerun on, I think, like, Daytime Channel 4 every now and then. Yeah, I said BBC, but it might be in Channel 4, to be fair. I just mm. remember it being on Terrestrial. Um, and, like, from what I read, it, it kind of had, um, kind of like Star Trek, to mention it, it had, like, a, a resurgence of popularity and, like, syndication, like, reruns. Um, and the band have gotten over some of the like the wounds over like how, how what went down, <laughs> so I was yeah. going to come back into the public view a bit more. But um, I rewatched some a couple of episodes like on YouTube, like just in anticipation. Um, and it's obviously a lot more formal and more of a standard sitcom, but it does have um, like the crazy like exciting cameras and movement and cutaways and things like that you know and it's got it's definitely got us real like energy to it i think yeah i think so i think that's part of why this isn't as ridiculous a project for them to be involved with as it initially seems because mm. the idea of the monkeys the sitcom seems to be let's basically do a hard day's night as a sitcom and I suppose that's how quickly A Hard Day's Night bedded into popular culture and became a familiar object, because when Richard Lester was making that, he was using quite a lot of um, ideas from avant-garde and continental cinema. He was like talking about Louis Malle, films like Zazie at the Metro, things like that. Um, mm. But by the late 60s, this was the sort of thing that you could just put put in a sitcom and people would understand it. It's just, you know, it's antic, it's funny, it's a, a bit sort of Python-esque without some of the more alienating bits of Monty Python, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, a bit, a bit slapstick as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, def- yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair point, that the context of watching it then versus now like, was particularly important for this film, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so Mickey Dolan's jumps off the Gerard Desmond Bridge. Um, I just I like mentioning this because I found out it was a real bridge and it really was opened in '68, uh, meaning yeah. that that, it, that could be the real opening ceremony. Maybe they advertised it as bridge opening and monkey attempted suicide tonight. Like, it's a very high job, so. Uh, they folks at home is definitely like for show in the film like there's no way you could no, there's not something to do but yeah um so yeah that's how so, so it's, it's already an interesting start and the transitions into like a, a, a gorge, gorgeous albeit slightly druggy by their standard sounding song <laughs> um and yeah it, it just i think like the, what it shows you is it looks sounds pretentious but it looks irritating in the songs it, it does like the full song mm. it is um the music still is at the very center which i didn't quite remembered like until i rewatched it that they don't that they do have like so kind of like magical mystery tour they have like song segments that are yeah. arguably the strongest so at least some of the strongest bits of the film yeah um, no i absolutely it's kind of like a trippy music video really at this point it's yeah it's funny that you should mention that because i kept being reminded of something we've dealt with a lot on pop screen which is that kind of mid 80s moment where music videos were in they were obviously not going to be a fad they were sticking around and it started sort of bleeding through winter films you started having these kind of tweener projects like I mean the wall the Pink Floyd film is probably the most famous example but also things like uh, it couldn't happen here the Pet Shop Boys movie which is very much a series of music videos with linking material for a while that that was a form that was a thing that you could do in a movie and it does feel like those but you know about 15 years too early yeah, uh, and I mean that's still a thing, isn't it? Um, but it tends to be more of a, a a big statement. Well, I guess it was a big statement then as well. To be fair, um, I think na- nowadays it gets positioned as its own thing. You think of like visual yeah. albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Beyonce, Frank Ocean, um, Janelle Monae. Yeah, Janelle Monae. Um, Tovlo, uh the Lady Gaga did one recently. I, I don't know, but like, yeah, like in general. Uh, yeah, but yeah. So, as you say, they tend to be positioned as their own like big statement thing. But rather um, than having it positioned as a, an actual movie, which the the wall obviously is, you know, the wall premiered it can. It doesn't mm-hmm. get more legitimate movie than that. Whereas even something like Lemonade, which was a massive thing when it came out was positioned as a kind of adjunct to the music. It wasn't really a film project. Yeah. It was part of the album experience. Yeah, that's a fair point, actually. I mean, the, there's maybe the odd exception. Like, Daft Punk did a couple of interesting uh, films. Like, one which has no music whatsoever, I think, or, like, isn't... And, and another one which accompanied uh, Discovery, but but what became a proper film in cinemas. But they're, like, the exception, I think, for sure. 
Um, Listeners, if you're curious to hear more about these Daft Punk projects, there may be episodes <laughs> later on in the year in which we dig into those. But yes, yeah, them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, I, I yeah. mean, watching it, like, just talking what we're talking about, um, yeah. it did make me, I mean, I wasn't alive, but <laughs> it makes me weirdly nostalgic for, I don't know, I quite like um, just with music, and film in general like having like big exciting exciting um event things like so yeah your favorite band going out and doing a goddamn movie like on its own merits and go being in cinemas and being a bit a big thing you know i think that kind of thing's fun um Absolutely. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead to good commercial returns as many people have shown but <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you know i think um when you watch it when i think head has a lot of retrospective acclaim and so i think people can appreciate can like maybe long for like that kind of event movie to happen i think no absolutely i mean my feelings about pop movies can be gauged by the fact that i've spent a year doing a podcast about them <laughs> uh, i absolutely think they're they're really fascinating and this is yeah more fascinating than most because it has such a complex set of feelings about what the band it's about mean and what their worth is that you don't normally get in you know the the standard kind of pop movie is something like and I'm not aiming this directly at the versions of this actual story but the standard pop movie is something like A Star Is Born and the point mm. of A Star Is Born is that you're meant to recognize that the pop star at the center of it is great. If you start questioning whether or not they're great, the whole thing just falls apart. And that's obviously not the case with Head. I mean, coming out of it, I, I remember thinking, I clearly like the monkeys far more than the monkeys like the monkeys. Yeah, was it was it Peter saying I'm a dummy over and over again? Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's almost the opposite, as you, as you say. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it kind of um, it doesn't like shy away from the their conflict about it, like so. So they could um, they could like go super commercial and, and just stick with the TV show kind kind of stick. They mm. could go the op- they could go the opposite end and just go totally experimental and they kind of do this weird like in between thing. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because in terms of the ambivalence over the monkeys' music and their image, you have that um, opening chant, which is like, you know, it's like the theme tune to the monkeys. It's like, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. But if it was done by the last poets or someone like that, just this sort (laughs) of rhythmic, tuneless chant that was co-written, as indeed was the film, by Jack Nicholson. Yeah, uh, which I had to read several times until I believed it. That's the thing. <laughs> you think um, it's, like, it's a common enough list. name? It's got to be another one. It can't be that Jack Nicholson. Just part of the weird, fascinating history of this movie. Because <laughs> this was produced by uh, BBS, as was the sitcom, which was a production company uh, run by Bert Schneider and this film's director, Bob Raffleson. And, and here's the weird thing. So the movie reflects monkeys at that time. And I mean, it seems to, at least uh, from yeah. what everything we know about it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Raffleson and, and Nicholson who were like kind of helming it. So like 
it's interesting how these external, like there were outside people being the main uh, writer, director, producers. Mm, yeah, it conveyed yeah. so well, like how the monkeys themselves like must have been feeling. Yeah, well, I, I think part of that is because uh, Raffleson and Schneider had been attached to the monkeys project from the start, sure. and and they mm. were, you know, they were. I don't mean this in a mean way. I mean it in a, a sort of admiring way. They were typical of their generation. They were like serious-minded, adventurous, politically committed young filmmakers who had seen, you know, Godard and Fellini. There were some amazingly overt Fellini nods in this movie, I think. Um, but they'd seen all that stuff and they wanted to direct stuff like that as well. And um yeah, they were going to go for it. There's a bit in Peter Biskin's book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is a history of that 70s New Hollywood, uh, which I think is is catty, but fair about what head is and how it fits into that historical moment. Um, it says, like nearly every other aspiring young director, Raffleson fancied himself a European auteur. With characteristic arrogance, Head was to be his eight and a half, the summation of his career and his meditation upon his art. Unlike Fellini, however, there was nothing to sum up because it was his first feature. <laughs> I mean, if you take out the bitchiness from that, which is very Peter Biskins, <laughs> that's fair, isn't it? It's a, it's a yeah. overwhelmingly overambitious movie, but it's, it's at least stealing from the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say, and it it does have like an amateurish like vibe at times. I think, um, which if you're on its wavelength, that's the charm. It is, it is, um, but it it is like, but it's stylishly done and with mm. a bit more. I mentioned Magical Mystery Tour before as a big Beatles nuts, um, and that's an obvious point of comparison for the Monkeys. Um, like there's a lot more control and like um and uh and style with the way they film it basically like a basic level like, and how they film it and cut it i think uh, it seems even though it's amateurish it's still got a bit it's got a lot of charm going for it and like it, just about enough professionalism <laughs> mm. <laughs> like make it all just about hang together i think and to pull off some of the the cooler effects in the movie and that's, you know, you have to ascribe that to Raffleson because he did, mm -hmm. for all, this is kind of a, a bizarre way to start off your career. He did become a quote-unquote proper director. His next film after this is Five Easy Pieces, which for a lot of people is their favourite film of that whole 70s new Hollywood wow. era. He was very much attached to Jack Nicholson as his career yeah. went on and most of his career peaks came when he reteamed with Jack Nicholson but you know what if you're going to be joined at the hip the hip to one movie star it might as well be Jack Nicholson right yeah it's way worse aren't there yeah <laughs> way worse roads you could go down um random aside mm. I, I swear I read that um the girl who kisses um, each of the monkeys was Jack Nicholson's then girlfriend. Ah, right. I was trying to find out who that was because there there are some very like for all it's it's not 
a, a film that has like many sort of dimensional women's parts and that's another no. way in which it's sadly typical for it either there are some interesting women in here and I was like dicking around to try and find out who that woman is and I couldn't I couldn't find out I mean, that, that is I mean it's it would I don't have an official source for that. I, I just read that on like an internet forum discussing the film, but um, I think uh, it was real commitment to the film if, if, <laughs> if you're willing to do that. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's got this anarchic, cynical, like, et, like quality to it, I think. Um, yeah. And it's quite, it's thrilling to watch as a film. And I feel uh, it's, He's become a cliche now because he's such a big star, but Jack Nicholson's like manic energy. You can you can imagine him, you can imagine his uh, enthusiasm and spirit coming through and driving a lot of that, I think. I feel like you've just come up with the most roundabout way of saying cocaine, but yes, it's right. I think that's, <laughs> you can absolutely detect Jack Nicholson's spirit in it. Um, yes, uh, I, because there's a lot of interesting kind of countercultural cameos in this. Uh, Nicholson himself does turn up in a fourth wall break moment. There's also a little appearance from Dennis Hopper, who yeah, yeah, I was delighted to learn was actually filming Easy Rider when this film is in production. So that costume that he walks in wearing, which I'd watch and thought, ah, that's a cute in-joke. Non-in-joke at all. That's the actual costume he wore in Easy Rider <laughs> because he actually had just walked off the set. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and there's um, there's Frank Zappa, obviously, as well. I mean, that's a more obvious cameo. But uh... Oh, man, I love the Frank Zappa cameo. Frank Zappa and his talking cow. Yeah, make a, make a sitcom out of that. He's like, um, he's just a cool kid, isn't he, Frank Zappa? Like that's, yeah. that's a fact. Like, I, I watched like, um, I watched a Frank Zappa episode, um, and talking about like the humor and mm. Sally has, but um, but yeah, like he's just so cool. <laughs> like, that's the only thing I took away from his appearance, and, and then the cow talked. It's like, okay, that's the thing. Zappa is credited I think one of the reasons why I have trouble like finding out who that woman was was the, the very few of the characters are named and you just have to hope that like they end up being called something like the jumper of the shake or something else that gives you some sort of hint as to who they were when the end credits roll. Uh, Frank Zappa is listed in the end credits as the critic because he has this fabulously delivered sort of sarcastic monologue about how the monkey's music needs to be better because the youth of America <laughs> depend on them to show them the way. <laughs> it's yeah. it's very Frank Zappa, <laughs> I think. That's great. <laughs> That's one of my favourite moments from the film, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's just delightful. It's got a lot of... Um, it's kind of... It, so tonal, the tonal mixing like sometimes doesn't work for me. So mm. when there's that, um, that girl on top of the building like, looking to jump, like that's just like very dark and yeah, like sad, I found. Yeah, so yeah. this tonal mixing, um, like this weirdly serious message about the youth of America... But, but it's kind of funny at the same time. Or even like yeah. when um, fairly early on in the movie, um, they're fighting in the trenches um, mm. as part of this war. And like, it has some horrific like war footage from Vietnam, as you say, um, like very 
live like current issue at the time, of course. Um, but then just like when they're running away, and then I think it was the Peter, I think it cuts back to him, and uh, it's like the cover of Life magazine, like really quickly. <laughs> it <goes laughs> yeah. back. It's very funny and, and quick, and and then when there's an uh, an NFL American football player in one of the trenches that I have to get past, it's kind of like sometimes that tonal inconsistency works. But if, if you're going to do that through the film, then it's more of a gamble, I think. Like what and subjective, like what does and doesn't work for each person potentially. Yeah, I think so. I think the movie kind of lost me a bit in the middle when I felt like it was it was sort of crossing the line between being chaotic in a good way and actually just kind of aimless. I think it was around the time of that that boxing skit, which is a parody of a Clifford Odette's play, which, you know, fair play for getting such an obscure reference into <laughs> the multiplexes, but it, it, yeah. it was really boring, I thought. It was definitely the least successful uh, element of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's my only comment. Yeah, basically, I think um, I, mean, I think uh, Davy Jones number in the middle picks things up a bit. I mean, that's great, <laughs> but like he was getting a bit aimless like towards towards then. I think um, there's some very odd yeah, numbers the... in the middle, some very distinctive numbers. Um, the mm. Davy Jones one is Daddy's song, isn't it? Yeah. That's bizarre. I mean, that is such an odd number. When it started, I thought this is like, in relative terms of the movie, this is kind of naff. Like, yeah. like the, the title, the, the the what he's wearing, the delivery of it. And then he totally won me over by about halfway through the song. Um, just their commitment to it. The um, the flourishes and the production of it. And, um, and just for a very simple technique um, of just cutting between him like two different color schemes but doing the same routine yeah and yeah, then just great really going for that my god like cutting like super super fast between them um and the fact that it doesn't perfectly line up between cuts is fine it's okay yeah. it's like it, still, it just about works and i think the problem with the boxing scene is it's tedious and also it, yeah it's just it, it kind of crosses a line where it's just so bruised and it's not it's just kind of horrible I mean, there is, it's kind of funny how in the crowd they keep, the other band members keep repeating the same lines like over and over again to like no effect. Yeah. But even then, like it's such, it's so subjective. I think it'll be interesting. I think it's a good movie for everyone to see uh, because everyone will get something different from it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I... And what they do and don't connect with, I think. I think with, with maybe it was the violence in the boxing scene, which is kind of odd. I think you, you know, I've seen a lot of comedies that use violence effectively. And I've seen some comedies that have what you might term a sort of realistic violence. But the thing with Head is it goes from being this completely cartoonish violence where, you know, things explode and bombs are thrown around and it's kind of like the young ones or something to like this scene of someone getting the shit knocked out of him in the boxing ring and the, the tonal leap there. Yeah is just unworkable for me i think yeah yeah um and that's it that's a gamble they take by the nature of the movie they make and i i i imagine that was a lot of the well well i mean you can read some of the contemporary reviews like online um and they're not great are they (laughs) no and (laughs) i think um especially when the the show is like a real like 
current thing on TV, you can imagine how that tonal changes like just added to it really um, to the negative reaction. Um, but it's a thrilling. But at the same time, some of the best moments come from those tonal changes, oh, and it's yeah, a thrilling yeah. ride throughout. I mean, just to talk about Daddy's song for a bit more, which um, I think is it's like kind of semi-parodic. It's the equivalent of, it's like taking one of those music hall numbers from a Beatles album like Lovely Vita or something and just making it like an, an yeah. inch more consciously parodic. Um, but it has like, a, your mother should know kind, yeah. of, kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah definitely. But it has another interesting supporting appearance in it because the dancer uh, that Davy Jones dances with is Tony Basil, who was a major choreographer of the time, appeared in a lot of experimental films by Bruce Connor, would also appear in Easy Rider, and yet is probably most famous for the early 80s novelty hit Hey Mickey, which, I mean, that's a career, isn't it? It's, was she involved in um, the David Byrne video for uh, Once in a Lifetime too? Did she uh, choreograph that as well, I heard? I do not know, but I would be amazed if she didn't. She gets in the most <laughs> incredible places. She has a cameo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know. Uh, yes, yes, she does. Um, yeah, yeah, she, she's collaborated with Talking Heads as well, uh, shortly before Mickey was a big hit. Right. Um, yeah, she choreographed and co-directed the video for Once in a Lifetime too. So just just adding to her like amazing career, as you say. I suppose that's interesting because Tony Basil had the opposite uh, direction from the Monkees that she started off as this very underground avant-garde artist, and then suddenly thought, you know what, I'd quite like to do some bubblegum pop now. That, that's that's probably the more common pop route though wouldn't you say perhaps yeah yeah uh, i don't know maybe maybe it's harder mm. to remember the people who sort of have their big take me seriously swing because it so often fails like harry styles is currently doing a pretty decent job of it scott walker <laughs> will forever be like the high water mark no one who's yeah. been in a boy band will ever do anything as mad as a late period scott walker album they just they won't True. be allowed to <laughs> but... actually i think i think that's a fair point i think yeah my example's probably a bit selective because you have had some people who sort of just doing whatever they want um and they get to a point where they're commercially unviable anyway mm. um yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's it's different from the monkeys. Um, but it's amazing, like how many. I mean, maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know if it's a stereotype about the sixties and like. Um, but I imagine all these like creative types moving against each other. People who they may not have realized were going to become big stars or yeah, rare paths. It's amazing. They're all like there working on these, like no. working on the music. Film and mm. completely because looked at through one lens, this is a cash in movie project for a manufactured band who'd probably hit their career peak. And we've been sat here talking about Bob Raffleson, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, and Tony Basil and Carol King yeah. and Harry Nilsson working on it. <laughs> I mean, it's the the kind of thing that any any movie would kill for that lineup of talent. 
Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. I, I think there's a lot more respect for it now. So it's partly mm. because just some of the songs and the skits are genuinely really good. Uh, surprisingly, maybe given the film's reputation uh, from the time period, but also we kind of know who was involved in it and what they went yeah. on doing. And yeah, maybe there's a bit more respect there. I think it's the sort of thing where it, it, for the reasons that I've just outlined, it is a very easy film to imagine people at the time hating. But I think if you regarded it as a genuinely bad movie rather than just, you know, a commercial flop, which it was, if you thought this was terrible, you're basically outing yourself as being kind of humorless, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um I, I don't know. It's just so subjective, though. I mean, I think it's totally... They don't just set out to do one thing. They do jump all over the place. And I think there's at least some bits you've got to say are funny, I think, no matter oh, who you are. God, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> the scene in the desert with the Coca-Cola machine is one of those segments, like we were saying earlier, that could have gone straight into their TV show. You know, it's not, it, it does have the movie's most overt Fellini reference when the Italian soldiers badges I Vitaloni after I Vitaloni, one of Fellini's early breakthroughs. But other than that, there's nothing sort of take me seriously about it. It's just a bit of goofy slapstick. Yeah. And and it's, it's fun. It's, fu- it's funny. It's great. But it is strange at the same time. I mean, yeah. it, it, isn't that a bit like when the in the the so called uh, Indian like wise like person that the cliche guru. comes in, yeah, the guru, and they're in a sauna at the same time, and then they just quite calmly exit the sauna right there. Yes, <laughs> just Which... adds to the mysticism. Of, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's very easy to sort of criticize. The, the kind of orientalist um, version of like India as a land of wise sages that appears over and over again in Western pop culture from the 60s. But I will say this, that Indian guru scene is funnier than the comedy Indian guru in the last series of Doctor Who. <laughs> yes. We, we have not come on that far. This is tons <laughs> better. Uh, I'm sure there's quite a lot of examples of that um, orientalist like stereotype of thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I briefly, you were going to say, I'm sure there are quite a lot of things that are funnier than that scene in Doctor Who, which would also be true. There are. Oof. <laughs> I was not a fan <laughs> of that moment. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of funny um, bits in it. Very simply, um, mm. and. It's, I mean, there's some really quite dark and scary bits that we should also talk about too. I mean, we've obviously mentioned, obviously, the, the war footage and the use of that. Um, I think um, just simple things like when they're performing for the screaming crowd, the hysterical crowd, which is funny, but then they use like the female scream as like, uh, as this like terrifying thing, this is a scary moment. Like, <laughs> Well, they use tubes that, don't they, after they've repeated that that execution footage that I mentioned, that very famous footage where even if you don't know the provenance, you've seen the photo of the man, uh, the Viet Cong member being shot in the street during the Vietnam War. 
and that cuts to a woman screaming, which is revealed to be a woman screaming at the monkey's concert, making that link once again between you know, the monkeys being a thing that distracts people from what's really going on in the world. But yeah, it, it is, it's an interesting link to make. There are a few connections here, like that line back in the trenches, which reminded me of that moment in um, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, where it cuts from the school playing fields to the trenches at World War One which mm. I always think is one of the great moments of cinema. And I think if that if that exact cut appeared in a Serge I. Eisenstein film, everyone would be talking about it as one of the great cuts in cinema history. But it, it was in a Monty Python film, so no one ever talks about it that way. But it's great. Yeah, yeah the, 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 what, the Monty Python film everyone forgets about. Uh, one yes. doesn't forget about it. Yeah, um yeah and there's some other um like when they do the happy birthday scene <laughs> which is kind of funny and like yeah silly. um but then it, it um it, it takes on this sinister edge um with a manically like laughing yeah and that yeah. old is like slowly approaching them and, and can't talk properly um as he's doing it and it's just like they switch up the the dark elements like like pretty suddenly um and so it's kind of kind of creepy at the same time definitely yeah i think that's common to a lot of that kind of late psychedelia you know even when you you look at something like the white album a lot of the kind of music hall and nursery rhyme stuff on that is notably creepier than it had been on previous <laughs> beatles records i think by 68 there was just a sense that things had to get darker in some way yeah um and yeah obviously vietnam would have affected that and all um but just a general sense of uh i mean it's, it's almost you've got to be careful it almost becomes like a cliche but i think it's kind of true that the hippie dream and the summer of love so-called summer of love like moving past that and getting yeah. to and being brought down back to earth a little bit it's fascinating that, isn't it? Because for all, a lot of people remember the 60s as kind of a halcyon time now. So much of its pop culture is deeply pessimistic. Like one of the big discoveries that I've made while I was doing this show is Catch As If You Can, uh, the Dave Clark Five movie, which is so brutally cynical about the counterculture that you assume it must be made, what, about 69, 70, something like that. But no, shot in like 1965. It, it's mm. very strange that so many people seem to have worked out what was going to happen before it happened. I mean, I wonder as well if um, another huge generalisation, I might add. But um, yeah, the cliche of the 50s, um, kind of more straight laced more control over the mm. youth and i guess in the 60s you had the, i mean this is a massive generalization obviously you had um people challenging authority and things in the 50s but it there's more of a, a i guess the counter kind of yeah. yeah so you got you got you got these um young people who are willing to challenge conventions like rubbing ideas off each other more of access to drugs as well probably influences things a little bit too. Yeah. Um, and 
so there's more willingness to challenge typical authority and stake your own claim and therefore the movies and content might be more cynical because you will more willing to be critical very simply yeah i think so i think you know that there is a sense that by this stage in the 60s criticism is a kind of currency that particularly in britain part of what the 60s counterculture was about was linked to the satire boom and the end of people having a deferential attitude towards politicians just because they were politicians. So the idea that some of that criticism would be turned inwards, you know, nowadays, because you've got this story of the 60s as a big party that ended with Altamont and Charles Manson, nowadays you sort of interpret it as a portent of doom, but it's not really, it's just like healthy self-criticism. Somebody who has the keys to a pop culture juggernaut like the Monkees should be self-critical because the alternative is that they become Simon Cowell. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was thinking of this in the more modern day as well about there's kind of, um, so if, I think, I, I think the monkeys happen today. Mm. They probably be more self-assured and have more self-confidence and be less down on themselves about being a so-called manufactured band and the public um there's so much like cynicism and understanding of like how reality tv works how record companies work how bands are put together um it, i I, th I think to an extent it would be less of a big deal but like honestly um like so i just find it interesting so and so that's a good thing in a way that um you a performer can just be a performer uh, and you can respect them for that or you don't have to have total authenticity which is often like bs anyway which is like totally you can't like totally hold yeah, yourself to yeah in every aspect of your life but at the same time that allows people like simon cal to, to flourish really yeah yeah <laughs> and, and to run rampant and to dominate the culture as well at the same time it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I, when you were saying that, it suddenly struck me that the nearest thing we've had to the monkeys, like this century even, would be that wave of Disney Channel stars of the 2020s. And they're still expected to be sort of a moment in a Disney Channel star where they establish themselves as a mature artist and do something more risky. I mean, Miley Cyrus's later career is basically one long string of head moments, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, she did that album with the flaming lips. Uh, that is, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> she did that, um, that. She regrets it now, that performance for Robin Thicke. Um, like, all kinds of stuff, for sure. Um I mean, like even I even own music by some of these people. Like I, I own like Miley Cyrus, um, Heli Kiyoko. Is that um Kiyoko? I always forget that Kiyoko, she started sorry. off on Disney because she has absolutely escaped that, hasn't she, in a way that very few yeah. of the rest have. So some of the music's great. Um uh I think um and my wife was watching, is it Olivia Rodrigo or someone? Um, so there's all kinds who's on the um, High School Musical TV series and she's doing, a, she had this uh, 
music video and it's a cheerleader with like leather gloves and like stealing stuff and cut and it's just like <laughs> it's almost like cliche to rebel yeah, it's almost yeah. A good thing. Like, the perfect career path is to do that now almost but um but yeah it's i think like all disney stars that's what we expect really it's funny <laughs> be weird if they didn't do that <laughs> in some ways it's like it's gone back to the dichotomy in the 60s where you know, on one side, people were very angry that the monkeys didn't write their own songs. But on the other hand, even like a certified genius like Marvin Gaye had to really fight Motown to let him write yeah. his own songs. And there is still that split today. Like, so you look at someone who's come up from a kind of bedroom pop, alt pop kind of SoundCloud world, someone like Claro. Or Billie Eilish is another example. When it was found out that Billie Eilish's parents have some of the most hilariously minor entertainment industry connections in, like, the sort of thing that a character yeah. in a Christopher Guest movie would boast about. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, she's an industry plant. I always knew it. But Olivia Rodrigo, you know... I, you'd think if it would hit anyone, it would hit the girl who does sort of angsty pop punk songs and used to be on the Disney Channel, but it doesn't because she is kind of upfront about that. I think it's kind of the pretense that people are bothered by more than actually being manufactured. That's a very fair point, actually. And, and you mentioned Motown. I mean, mm. there have been like controlling record companies and forces throughout so when i talked about simon cowell actually this has always happened it's just like taking different forms i mean the thing about motown is they were a really exploitative operation in a lot of ways who refused to let some of their talent really shine but they made great records and simon cowell yeah. didn't and that's that's it that's all that's the only thing that matters you don't think simon cowell made great music see i, I was what I wanted to do was end that with a better gag and say, you know, Motown made, uh, I heard it through Grapevine and Simon Cowell made. And then I just thought, fuck, what did Simon Cowell make? What what were one of, what, what were the songs that he actually had a hand in? And I can't remember any of them. I cannot remember a single one. I think he, like, Psycho, the, the record label, like, forced... That X were forcing like the X Factor winners to like not do anything for years. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like you remember that the big cover they do, and yeah. then it takes a while for them to actually release proper music. I mean, Little Mix. Like um, obviously, well, they broke away from Psycho, didn't they? Um, did. Yeah, I guess when X Factor was at its peak, it does have that kind of mean logic to it, where it's like all right, kid, you've done your Christmas number one, but we need you to shut up because next year we need our next Christmas number one to sell. Yeah, It's not really a record label in that way, is it? It's not about building a stable of talent. I think you're right in what you said, though. Um, yeah, for sure. I think um, it's that pretense and the disingenuousness like, uh, and not seeming honest. I think that's true. So like, now we know more about the kind of, how these things are put together and mm. we understand it is okay to just be a performer and be respected for that um and it is okay to discuss things with your record label and work things out together with them yeah <laughs> and that doesn't make them necessarily evil or some of the record labels actually have people who are really into music and are actually good forces 
um, that it, it's more other elements like we're more bothered about for sure. Um, but still, but it's interesting though because the monkeys, I think, I think part of the issue with the monkeys was they they were denied, they wanted more control and they were denied it. Yeah. Um, and that and head was like around the time of head they they fell out with that like amazing like songwriting the kind of the regular songwriting team behind them mm. um and so yeah it all kind of came so heads i really enjoyed re-watching it but it was kind of bittersweet at the same time because i know it was kind of like things would slowly come crashing down <laughs> yeah the, perhaps the miracle of late period monkeys is that the records are good despite the fact that you know it, it should be one of the biggest pop star cautionary tales of all time shouldn't it the boy band who got so big for their own boots that they looked at their songwriting team of Cavill King, Neil Diamond and Harry Nilsson and went yeah I don't know guys you know <laughs> the drummer's got this song that he likes that should have been the train wreck to end all train wrecks and it wasn't. Point. Uh, yeah but it wasn't even like um like they wanted to do more of the music on the recordings like for the show uh, and that they were and had a battle for that kind of thing so um i have sympathy because they they were they were trying to be involved i mean although sometimes it can become like an ego thing and the new songs but their song was like really good i think um kind of them being engaged with it but mixed with these great songwriters was a perfect formula but it's just a shame that it just happened that perfect sweet spot happened so briefly and then things kind of fell apart sadly um like a lot of great bands from around that period yeah but they they always seemed magnanimous about it in the end peter talk left after like they did one more special which had the excellent title yeah. 33 and a third revolutions per monkey which fantastic <laughs> yeah um and I, I think there was like a period of time where they were a bit sort of bitter about how the whole thing turned out but it didn't last and you know uh nesmith certainly had some late career hits Davy Jones will always have his place in history as the man who made David Bowie get his stage name so Oh, really? Okay, I didn't realise that. Because yeah. David Bowie's real name is David Jones, but by the time he was trying to break through, the monkeys were already massive, so he knew he couldn't call himself David Jones. I see. And he, he was great in the Brady Bunch movie too. They random aside. <laughs> they pop up in the most remarkable places, don't they? I mean, I've even sort of before I started really thinking about the Monkees as a band and his solo music in, in, you know, in the aftermath of his recent death, I'd always had a great soft spot for Mike Nesmith because he produced Repo Man, which is one of yeah. the best movies ever made. And I'll never not be grateful to him for that because no one at Universal wanted to produce Repo Man. Everyone hated that movie, but he got it made. Yeah, yeah, he had a good career, like film production in the background, didn't he? Afterwards, mm. and Repo Man being the re example I recognised when I was reading about it, um, yeah. the great film. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, any closing thoughts on the monkeys or head before we wrap up? Um, it's good. It, it, it is held good. up. Yeah. Um, I, I, the first time I saw it, I thought, "Oh, this is good. It's it's not bad. It's good. It's not just a cult curio." 
it's enjoyable <laughs> as a movie. Yeah. Um, and it's and then re-watching it, reading up on it for this podcast, it's still good. Uh, it yeah. wasn't like now I've set a benchmark of it not being bad. It still kept it to that quality. <laughs> I think um, I think it's kind of um, it's it's just good that these things have been kept and exist so later generations can enjoy them more and appreciate them for what they are. Yeah. I think it is. Um, I, I, it is a lot of fun yeah. going through. You know, as as much fun as it is to go through the list of a thousand and one movies to watch before you die, or the AFI top one hundred, or something. There is something very, very rewarding about going through the weirdo curios of a previous era and thinking, "Wow, people got studio money to make that." Yeah, <laughs> um, it's very enjoyable, and the soundtrack's great um and so it's it's just nice that um it's despite the context of when it came out and what it well it either did for their career or like i read interview an interview where um it was suggested that it was more that they were already like on the way out commercially it was just more their swan song so whichever way you pitch it it's just good that it has so much enthusiasm and energy to it despite mm. that context and i think that's kind of my main takeaway as well plus the songs are great i forgot how good the songs were the songs are so great yeah i'm, I'm off to listen to circle sky again i think yeah Ditto. <laughs> so listeners if you enjoyed that show uh, you can get a monthly bonus episode of your actual pop screen on uh, patreon donate to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show where you get early access to our other movie podcast directors and cut and my doctor who reviews twice a week but until then uh, that's been your lot from pop screen i've been graham i've been joe and we'll see you next week 